This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Historic Souvenirs presents a cyclist's intrepid journeys, adapted from his book, Pedal Power. Roy Sinclair and his partner Harlico are seeing her homeland by cycling Japan from top to tail. Roy, then head of New Zealand's chapter of the World Peace Bell, sought a replica bell to site at Christchurch Botanic Gardens, where it hangs today. On waking to a crisp autumn morning dawning over Kagoshima Bay in Japan's southern island of Kyushu, we can't imagine a greater peace. Where we've camped is an undisturbed paradise washed by the Pacific tides, leaving pieces of pumice cast up on the beach from the last eruption in 1914 of the volcano Sakurajima across the bay. In something of a recent equivalent, the undersea explosion of a volcano somewhere near the islands of Okinawa erupts pumice that floats to the surface, forms rafts, blocks shipping lanes, threatens to disrupt fishing, recreation, even the nuclear power generation that relies on seawater coolant circulating. We're thinking to cycle down another of the southern extremities of the island, Osumi Peninsula adding 150 kilometers to our overall journey. We cycle to a pier to catch the ferry across the bay to Ibusuki. Our immediate plan is to retrace our journey to that seaside spa town of Ibusuki, reputed to restore human beauty there by letting the body be buried in hot sand. This time, we intend to cycle south on that peninsula to polish off our trip by bicycle, rather than be obliged to abandon our bikes to take a bus along a private road to Cape Satimisaka on the other peninsula. When the ferry berths, motorists drive several cars up the ramp. We go on with our bikes. The vessel being relatively cramped for space, we join the captain on the bridge, admiring his mastery of the controls as we plough through choppy seas for the short voyage across the bay. Disembarking at Ibizuki, we're keen to get directions to visit a memorial to Japan's casualties of war, a place called Shiran, and to cycle the road rising up the slopes of the volcano Kaimondaki. Pleasant staff at the information centre advise Haruko, we surely should catch a bus. It's very mountainous, and you'll never make it by bicycle. In Ibusuki, we glimpse men and women, only their faces showing, taking the sands, as they say, luxuriating in the warmth of sand surrounding their body. We find a way out of town through strange, narrow, and seemingly little-used tunnel. Two-thirds of the way through, we are deafened by what sounds to be a, a low-flying aircraft. We're then startled by toots of a cow behind, making quite a din underground. We took the tunnel access to be for pedestrians and cyclists, not cars. Along the coast, we encounter schoolchildren happily homebound, walking a precarious path suspended high above the sea. 
a view far out over the Pacific Ocean. Konnichiwa to middle-aged sisters. Stop to talk. Please, come back to Japan next time with a baby, they say. They must think I look very young. But what about my, my balding head? They burst into laughter. The far side of the volcano, perfect cone. The road drops to the ocean. We'd reached the south end of Kyushu, Japan. I realize at the other end, on Hokkaido Island, where we began nearly three months ago, it being autumn, already the first dusting of snow warns of a harsh winter there. I smile at the memory of Yoshio, husband of the couple whose hospitality we enjoyed. But his home-cooked dish of squid guts I could not. In Kayushu, the climate is still mild by comparison, though wintry mist makes it spooky. We cycle halfway up a mountain range to a town of less than 14,000 citizens. We cycle in lush countryside along the rural road to Jiran, leading to a narrow street bordered by old stone walls and trimmed hedges, punctuated by many semi-disguised entrances to Shiran's former samurai houses. Here... Traditional Japanese architecture and gardens betray an elegant, albeit simple, beauty. A broader main road climbs away from the town in sweeping curves to a memorial to Chiran's modern-day samurai, the kamikaze pilots. Lining each side of the road are more than a thousand stone lanterns. Each represents a kamikaze pilot sacrificed to this ill-conceived cause in 1945. I know they're young. Some say they're children. True, the faces we see on the lantern seem but babies caught in a conflict not of their making. Under cover of darkness we find the entrance. Inside the park is a grassed spot behind a hedge close to clean toilets not far from the Kamikaze Museum, in the misty evening. It's spooky, all right. As thunderstorms circle Chiran in the mountains, they ensure our sleep is so fractured, nightmares won't get a look in. We scurry around at first light, all packed and away before workmen arrive to resume work on a project of the day before. Mounting the bicycles, we're whizzing downhill to a convenience store, still blinking the sleep from the eyes as we buy the best breakfast to fuel our endeavours by day, consumed standing by a post-box which serves as our table. On this chilly morning, our cans of coffee are comforting to hold, as well as does their contents settle our digestion. It's supposed to be a peace museum, the Kamikaze Pilots Special Attack Force takes the moniker Kamikaze from Japan's deliverance in the year 1281 AD. In face of overwhelming odds, a massed, well-armed Mongolian force is about to annihilate a feeble Japanese force defending Fukuoka on Kyushu. An opportune typhoon wrecks most of the Mongol vessels. Spared being invaded, Japanese attribute this victory to a divine wind, kamikaze. It inspires the commander of Japanese naval forces in 1945. If it worked wonders in 1281 AD, why won't it seven centuries on? 
Rear Admiral Takihiro Oshinishi vows to reverse the tide of events. The kamikaze aircraft should be simple, so in stringent times it means using recycled engines, fuel only for a one-way mission to locate and attack the enemy target by flying directly onto their deck, detonating their one 250-kilogram bomb in doing so. Exploding in fiery fury, there's no escaping death. Yet a kamikaze pilot's assured of glory, praised for his patriotism, immortal in the hereafter. Their devotion to duty, self-sacrifice, the worship of the emperor, makes suicide kamikaze missions seem the ideal outcome. It's a tactic that works well the first time. Next time, Allied aircraft understanding suicide missions are quick to intercept them. In World War II, thousands of kamikaze planes take off on their pilots' final flight. By flying suicide missions, the Japanese commit both sides to a heavy human toll. It's Japan's last-ditch effort in the final phases of World War II to triumph over a stronger American-led Allied force. In the Pacific's biggest amphibious assault of the war, they stormed ashore in the Battle of Okinawa on April 1, 1945. A few months later, the architect of kamikaze warfare, Vice Admiral Takihiro Oshinishi is dead by his own sword. He wrote a note expressing his intention to atone for the estimated 4,000 young men, all pilots, killed while under his command. He had come to understand it's futile to attack a nation so powerful as the United States. No, he believes the future to lie in cooperation among nations, in peace. In Shiran's Kamikaze Museum, few of the displays carry English explanations, unlike the Atomic Bomb Museum at Nagasaki. Nevertheless, Chiran's museum offers me a tape recording in English glorifying the Kamikaze campaign. It's as if Japanese experience a need to safeguard their pilots' honor and integrity. A centerpiece of the museum is a Japanese hen fighter, looking much as the American Mustang. Photos show the smoking decks of ships such as HMS Indomitable after encounters with the kamikaze planes. HMS Indomitable, having the resilience of its armoured flight deck, escapes serious damage. As the war's ending, the aircraft carrier reaches Hong Kong just after the Japanese surrender, but in time for her aircraft to fly the war's last raid to stop dissident Japanese on September the 1st, 1945, launching rogue suicide missions. Their fast motor launches attack ships, bringing back the British to resume control of the Crown Colony of Hong Kong, spotting them headed for the British fleet. Aircraft from HMS Indomitable intercepts and attacks the suicide craft. In Hong Kong itself, still unexploded bombs lie buried but occasionally set off by earth-moving machines. A frightening prospect for future generations to know the folly of war. The museum preserves the last words to parents and partners written before the kamikaze flights. One pilot addresses his letter to his as-yet-unborn child. Fascinated, we pause. A school party of 12-year-olds arrives to see the museum exhibition. 
They sit on the floor listening to the museum director, a kindly man, so all can see he holds up a very famous photo showing kamikaze pilots, all 17 years old, posing with their mascot dog before takeoff. As a sequel to publishing that striking image, a journalist later reveals how the pilots, knowing they're on a death mission, were told to smile and, and put on a brave face for its readers. Harleko tells me the director's telling the children how heroic were the pilots. Unlike young visitors we met at Nagasaki Atomic Bomb Museum, this director has these children spellbound, listening intently to all he says in what I concede is a compelling narrative. Among the exhibits we come upon the reminiscences of a motherly nurse who, in her nightly duties, moved among the sleeping personnel in the barracks. She knows which pilots will fly on kamikaze missions next day. And so do they, who are huddled under blankets, shoulders shaking, sobbing in fear. I'm beginning to feel uncomfortable about the presentation, wondering if it's me being out of step with the cultural norms of so-called heroism. Significantly, there comes a request from this town of Jiran to be blessed with a grant of a world peace bell. But the one who founds the organization declines the request. So, as it turns out, Chiran won't take no for an answer and funds its own. I see it, mounted outside Kamikaze Museum. To me, that bell's a fake. That bell's a fake. That bell's a fake. That bell's a fake. Outside, the museum tour parties, many of them children, follow their flag-waving leaders, assembling for the obligatory photographs against an impressive backdrop, a kamikaze pilot statue. In these ways is the Kamikaze Museum telling an easily influenced young generation an illusion? Somehow I feel sorry for them. This is not telling them the true picture. Really, our history reflects something far darker. It's by no coincidence that the Kamikaze pilots often come from poorer families, whose children hope that in being brave they bring their parents both honor and pride. It's implicit in letters the pilots write for their families back home, typically putting on a brave face, expressing regrets for not being the ideal son their parents had wished for. We climb the volcanic slope through cloud, emerging to a view of Kagoshima Bay that the kamikaze pilots would see as they set off in search of their allied targets. According to legend, they'd wave their aircraft wings over the mountain, dropping as they did, flowers announcing this to be their last flight. From the flowers fall seeds on hillsides that bloom to this day. From the flowers fall seeds on hillsides that bloom to this day.
to put it into perspective, kamikaze pilots did wreak havoc on advancing Allied shipping, but in the overall effect of their defiance, it's futile. Inexperienced, by virtue of their age, they're easy pickings for seasoned Allied pilots. Among some kamikaze pilots are they who feign engine failures or survive forced landings. Others, all ready to go into combat, are robbed of the opportunity as the war ends. On that long mountain climb, I keep my somber thoughts to myself. From what I can gather of the kamikaze tradition, Japanese military leaders perpetrate murder on their own kind by goading them to go off to certain death, 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 to certain death. Church bells peal with ancient attraction for our ancestors. The bells convey a call to worship, go to war, or simply to celebrate a monarch's birth, marriage, or mourning. It's always important and tuneful to the human ear. Historic Christian missionary contact here in the south of Japan, one converts to the new faith and its predilection for bells. We might expect the heat of atomic explosion over Nagasaki should melt all metal, silencing these bells forever. But sufficient survive that the chimes may continue. That city suffered in the Second World War devastation beyond belief from one bomb. Yet peace may resurrect Nagasaki to embody hope, dreams and happiness. Engineers devise how to rebuild the south wall of Urakami Cathedral, half a kilometre from where the atom bomb blew up, a blast destroying the largest Christian church in Asia at that time. What irony that this western weapon be the one to demolish that symbol of civilization, its cathedral. Having already visited the museum in the city first suffering the effects of this new atomic weapon, Hiroshima, I'm already convinced of horrific consequences of deploying now nuclear weapons capable of destroying far more than at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Humans go on to get ever greater weapons of mass destruction. Glorifying warfare is the key to unlocking more violence in that kamikaze museum, a huge mural draws the eye to an image of kamikaze pilots shown as falling cherry blossoms. Any cyclist knows, despondency is allayed by a long descent. 
I chase Haliko as she speeds downhill from clear air in the mountainside town of Shivan. Through a series of curves, we dip beneath cloud cover that had hidden the distant urban sprawl. We can see it now. Kagoshima City. Our arrival in the city coincides with its flamboyant Buhara Autumn Festival. Inner city streets close during the colorful, noisy parades. We easily fit in. Costumed telecommunications workers insist we help drain their sake bottles. Japanese women have a beauty that accompanies their many styles of costume. One large, round-faced man with a huge grin looks like a karate champion. He flings his arms round Haluko. She disappears into the folds of his striking kimono. They're the real Japanese, whose company I enjoy so much. What better welcome than this to wish for at the end of a 71-day bicycle journey? The journey complete. We're in Tokyo, but can't resist cycling some more. The populous capital encourages citizens and overseas tourists to cycle on a 69-kilometre route it opened, incorporating a sea crossing through busy shipping lanes and cycling on recreational paths. Like Cinderella, we know this idyllic lifestyle of ours is soon over as we gather to celebrate dining with our hosts, the Kansai New Zealand Society of Japan. Now it's over. Time to go home. We've cycled well over 4,000 kilometers on our Japan journey. As doctors do, my GP compliments me for coming. Pleased to see me now in my 60s having survived. I'm slimmer and fitter and somewhat more relaxed than I was on my last visit three months ago, he says. He meticulously records all those details, along with the results of tests he had sought. They confirm his complete reversal of my previous prognosis. Thankfully, I have not just enjoyed but benefited from long-distance cycling, fueled by Japan's cuisine and hospitality. The doctor considers it provides the clinic with some valuable research. And the cashier hands me the bill on my way out. I'm elated at an email confirming a world peace bell is cast and already loaded on the Japanese peace ship Topaz bound for Auckland. When it arrives, it's a big item. Fortunately, New Zealand Courier Post transports it free of charge to Christchurch. It's a project keenly supported by Christchurch City Council, but it's now over to us of New Zealand chapter of the World Peace Bell Association, not ratepayers, to see to it being sited in the beautiful botanic gardens. The city's architectural designer, Crispin Skur, does us a superb design to house it, setting the New Zealand Peace Bell apart. But the chapter needs raise $100,000 before Crispin's computer image will be built. Peace will prove to be a hard sell to many people in business we approach. It's as if a bike ride the length of Japan for a world peace bell hardly rates a mention. National radio is the exception. While other mainstream media are slow to respond, New Zealand On Air funding for coverage of community interest broadcast brings Wayne Mowat and Liz Grant to the cause with an interview widely publicizing the World Peace Bell Project. We battle on. 
always encouraged by the sheer enthusiasm of the Christchurch Botanic Garden staff, led by Dr. David Given and later Jeremy Hawker, who see a bell and associate Asian-style garden as a symbol of the city's multicultural society. Jenny Moore and her landscape design team are all for it. Barbara August of the Council International Relations team is a key member of our chapter. A long-time peace campaigner, Dr. Kate Dews of the Peace Foundation, joins our ranks, and Gary Moore, Mayor of Christchurch, is the anchor that keeps the project in place. Linwood Woolston Rotary Club take it on as its Rotary International Centenary Project. Gerald Austin and 22 others quietly raise $10,000, the largest single donation their club had ever given. It's a wonderful contribution. There's a book to recommend reading, The Bells of Nagasaki in English. He's a young doctor in the radiology department at the local medical school who naturally knows about radiation as it relates to X-ray risk and diagnosis. On 9th of August, 1945, he left the building where he had been working just as the bomb blast collapsed it, having escaped the rubble. He writes 13 books before succumbing four years later to injuries that fateful day. Dr. Takashi Nagai's account is detailed and thoroughly objective in its desperate plea for world peace. With this atomic bomb, war can only be suicide for the human race. I kept Dr. Nagai's book carefully protected in my panniers to read during spells on our ride. The Bells of Nagasaki tells of his poignant warning to the world. Another message is anonymous, displayed on a wall of the museum. A person who possesses weapons is not qualified to pray for peace. Similar sentiments surrounding nuclear weapons comes across in the stance of David Longy's government, enacting strict anti-nuclear legislation banning nuclear-powered and armed ships from New Zealand waters. It makes me proud to be a New Zealander, seeing our nation heading a list of countries that contributed something of significance to world peace. We also treasure New Zealand for the ease of getting away from it all, even on bicycles. Recalling my childhood, I remember how grown-ups in my life longed to escape the office, home, and particularly the telephone. I'm lucky to have been brought up by such people. Things have changed. We now carry our telephones with us and enjoy sending text messages, which conflicts with the idea of escaping. Ours is an island nation. Four million of us. Four million of us hardly constitutes a crowd and a third of our land mass is administered by the Department of Conservation. In New Zealand, a back road may lead us off the beaten track to intriguing places accessible to cyclists, which we are dedicated to doing. Back roads stay firmly embedded in Kiwi culture, even if rarely travelled, and there's one day a year when a back road's rough metal surface will seem even more deserted, even more desperately lonely than usual. On Christmas Day, 
It's why Hilako and I are traveling by train from Christchurch to Balclutha, our bikes aboard. It's on Christmas Eve. Listen next week to Historic Souvenirs on Free FM 89.0, proudly supported by New Zealand On Air, for another intrepid journey by bicycle, adapted from the late Roy Sinclair's book, Pedal Power. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.